You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Now and Then. I'm Heather Cox Richardson. And I'm Joanne Freeman. Today we're going to talk about a topic. The reason for which we're talking about it will become apparent as soon as I say what it is. We want to talk about disappearances on the high seas. Now, obviously, this is related to a story that really was all over the press, and that's an understatement recently, and that is the disappearance of the submersible, the Titan, which ultimately was found to have imploded. They found uh, remains of the ship on the floor of the sea, and it was not a mystery any longer. But for those handful of days when it was unknown what was happening, the press coverage was over the top. And what fascinated us about it, and it's part of what we want to explore today, is the ways in which the press coverage said a lot more about us than it actually did about the submersible, the Titan. The things that we were interested in or that the press was interested in that we were reading about and apparently must have been interested in because they kept feeding us more of it. There are any number of ways in which the coverage suggested a lot about where the United States was now, at least in its kind of mental landscape. So, for example, given the great wealth inequity that we deal with in so many ways right now, surprise, surprise, there was a story about, you know, right now the word that we use for anyone who's very wealthy, I guess, is billionaires. Billionaires who paid supposedly $250,000 a piece to be on the submersible. And so part of the interest in the story, I think, was, oh, okay, there's like a handful of really wealthy people who went down in this submersible and What does that suggest about them? And even in a slightly seamy kind of a way, maybe they deserved it. Should they have spent their money that way? Another really interesting angle was just the idea that the owner of the company poo-pooed regulations because they tamped down on innovation. And here we are at this moment where people are attacking experts and science is always in the news and the government and its role in regulation. And poof, that becomes a big part of this story as well. So that's what we want to do today is look at specifically two incidents in the past, both involving a disappearance at sea, and see what they can tell us about America at the time. And I'm particularly interested in this, not only because of what we project onto 
these sorts of disappearances, but also because I think that the stories we tell, at least in the United States, having to do with the oceans, are peculiarly mythic. That is, the oceans are places of enormous mystery. They're also in between places for a lot of people, and they still remain relatively unknown and very, very dangerous. So one of the things that's always interested me, of course, growing up on the water and hearing the stories and being married to somebody who's on the water every day is how little we actually know about the oceans even still. Compared, say, to what we know about geology, we know a lot less about the oceans. So the oceans are still this extraordinary and extraordinarily dangerous mystery onto which we can project all kinds of human emotions and human fears. And related to that is the fact that we don't control it, right? We burn down forests, we build things on land. Land is a different category. I think it feels, whether or not we actually can control it, it feels controllable. It feels defined. And just as you're suggesting, Heather, the ocean is the ocean. And there are still things, such as the Titan submersible, that happen on the ocean that you don't predict, you don't know what happened. So the ocean, I think you're right, as a place that is, in comparison with other spheres, um, relatively unknown, dangerous, and seemingly uncontrolled and uncontrollable, make it an ideal space for narrative creating. And the narratives that we create end up saying a lot about us. So the ocean becomes, and certainly in some of the periods we're talking about in the United States in the 18th and 19th centuries, becomes a place where individuals feel like they are able to test their own metal against the elements, against the gods, against the universe. And of course, that's all through our American literature. But a lot of that American literature actually gets its start from some of the stories that we're going to tell you. The first story that we want to focus on has to do with Aaron Burr's daughter, Theodosia. And I know Hamilton fans out there, they know Theodosia because they know the song and they know the name. She was an interesting character in her time, but as we'll be discussing in a moment, she disappears at sea. So one of the interesting things about Theodosia, Alexander Hamilton fans out there will not be thrilled with me. One of the things that sets Burr apart in a positive way is that he was very enlightened or open to ideas about women and intellect and education. He read Mary Wollstonecraft, and he says at one point he can't find any man willing to discuss it with him. So his daughter, Theodosia, his only, I guess, legal child, he educates her at the time, what they said was gives her a manly education. She educates her like a man, meaning she's not just educated to sew and dance and have good penmanship. She's educated in the same sorts of skills that any boy would be educated in at the time. So she receives a masculine education. She's noted for it so that when you see accounts of her, she's always pointed at for that. You know, she was remarkably possessed. You know, she spoke multiple languages. So she stands out for that reason. She also, of course, is linked with Aaron Burr, who stands out for a lot of reasons. She marries a wealthy planter in the South named Joseph Alston. And to set the scene of the sailing of her ship and the missing ship, by the time that this happens, her father had killed Alexander Hamilton 
in a duel in 1804, had fled to the South, but recovered from that, wandered out West seemingly to try and create some sort of empire for himself. It's really not clear what the heck he was doing out there. And then was arrested and put on trial with Theodosia obviously working on his behalf when he's being tried. He's acquitted. This is the whole thing about him going to the Spanish part of Louisiana and trying to break it off to be its own nation at the base of the Mississippi, right? Seemingly. That's the textbook version. I don't, I the don't know The textbook version, yes, is that he, he took a passel of men and marched out west, and they were armed, and they were seemingly trying to be on the spot to take some land, and they were seemingly talking to the Spanish government. But he gets off for that, and he runs to Europe? Pretty much, because okay. uh, at this point, national politics is out for him. That whole guns and trying to take over the country thing is not popular. Is that what you're saying? At the time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about now, but at the time, yes. And stays for a while uh, in Europe and then finally comes back to New York. And by this point, Theodosia has been married. She had a child. The child dies. She's in poor health. And it's decided that it would be a fine thing for her to head north from South Carolina up to New York to visit with her father, which might be just good for her health. She was 29 in 1812, which is around the time that this is going to begin. And what she was suffering from was branded nervous exhaustion, but that could be any number of different things. She was just in poor health, which is part of why they, she went by water rather than by land to visit her father. It would be supposedly easier traveling that way than going over land. From South Carolina to... New York. York. Correct. So that means they're going to have to go past all the sea islands of South Carolina and North Carolina, which have incredibly dangerous shifting sandbars. Just saying. Okay. (laughs) Just throwing that out there as a a fact. Really, really dangerous. I mean, I always thought if I ever get a chance to start writing trashy novels, that I would set some there in the sea islands because anything could happen in those sea islands. That is not a sentence I imagine coming from you. If I ever have a chance to write trashy novels, I will set them in the Sea Islands. I very much like that sentence. So she sets out on this ship, the Patriot, along with a friend of the families who's there to kind of see to her named Timothy Green. Wait, in in 1812? Isn't something else somewhat troubling going on? Yes. 1812, there's kind of a famous war. So yes, at the time that she departs, it seems like a relatively safe time to sail. So it's not as though she's sailing off into a battle. But still, the War of 1812 is getting off the ground at this point. So she sets off on the ship and basically never arrives. The ship never arrives. It just goes missing. So the trip was supposed to take only five or six days. But the boat ultimately, it doesn't appear. Aaron Burr, obviously is desperate to figure out what happened, as is her husband, Joseph Alston. In mid-January of 1813, about 20 days after the boat had left harbor in South Carolina, Alston writes to Burr, kind of tossing blame at Burr, at his father-in-law, for encouraging the trip. Alston says, "'Tomorrow will be three weeks since, in obedience to your wishes, Theodosia left me, It is three weeks and not yet one line from her. My mind is tortured. 
The Patriots' reputed swiftness in sailing inspired such confidence of a voyage of not more than five or six days that the three weeks without a letter fill me with unhappiness, a wretchedness I can neither describe nor conquer. Gracious God, is my wife too taken from me? He's referring to the fact that they lost their child. I do not know why I write, but I feel that I am miserable. Now, the press began to speculate about what happened. I actually, as one does, went wandering through newspapers from the time this morning because I was just very curious to see what it looked like in the newspapers. And not surprisingly, based on what you mentioned before, Heather, that the War of 1812 is erupting around this point, for a time, people thought that maybe the British had captured the ship and were holding it which was a not horrible outcome because sooner or later then Theodosia might have been able to come home. Then people thought that perhaps it foundered in some way. And again, given sea travel, water travel at the time, highly not normal, but certainly routine that that happened to ships. Now, interestingly, and this is where you start to see the times shape how people are interpreting events like this, around 1820, Suddenly, there are pirate stories that appear regarding this. Pirates took the ship. Pirates made her walk the plank. And the reason why this erupts at that point is because apparently in 1820, the U.S. Navy undertook a major anti-pirate campaign. And pirates were getting captured and they were giving deathbed stories of the horrors they committed in their lives. And so not surprisingly... That begins to be the story, that pirates captured the ship, and there are different levels of horrible that go along with that. You know, there's one story that a pirate killed her and buried her in Galveston Bay because she wouldn't succumb to his desires. There's another pirate who supposedly felt so bad about having to kill her that instead he had her walk the plank rather than having to (laughs) physically kill her. So there are all of these pirate stories. And again, it has to do with the fact that pirates are in the news. Pirates are being attacked. Pirates are being captured. And these stories don't stop. It gets to the point that by 1880, (laughs) there's a great headline in the Philadelphia Inquirer that reads, another alleged confession explaining her fate. (laughs) They're just all over the newspapers. In the summer of 1869, supposedly there's a portrait of a young woman discovered at a resort called Nags Head that was in coastal North Carolina. And a visiting doctor named William Poole, supposedly, made a house call while on holiday there visited an elderly woman named Mrs. Mann, and there was a beautiful painting in her home. And he wanted to know more about the painting, and he asked Mrs. Mann questions about the painting. She said that she had received the portrait from her first husband, a pirate. Once more pirates. The pirate husband claimed that he had boarded an abandoned ship that had been grounded on the shore with a number of other pirate friends, and that he had recovered the portrait from... A number of pirate friends. <laughs> I know. These are my pirate friends. These are my non-pirate friends. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. They're pirate yeah. friends. So he and the pirate friends boarded the ship, recovered this portrait from a cabin that seemingly was set out for a woman to occupy it. Mrs. Mann's husband said that other pirates had already stolen a lot of other goods from the ship before driving the ship towards the beach. Now, supposedly members of the Burr family confirmed that the likeness in the portrait looked like Theodosia Burr, 
And that ended up being one sort of hovering clue as to what happened to Theodos Ripper, that pirates boarded the ship, that pirates took everything from it, that the portrait was something that was taken, and that that explains Theodosia's fate. Well, and just to make a distinction here, when we think of pirates nowadays, we tend to think about people who are boarding ships at sea. But along the shifting sands of especially North Carolina, but in many places along the coast, the things that we're calling pirates here were also known as wreckers because what they do is they would lure ships to run aground, usually with lanterns. And then when the ship ran aground, they would steal everything off it everything off it, like take it apart, you know, and and take the wood as well. So there wouldn't be plank walking, but if you're on a ship that runs aground, especially at night, which is when this tended to happen off the shores of North Carolina, and I'm totally making up what might have happened to her, by the way, not at all a stretch to think that a lot of the people on board would have died because they wouldn't have known how to swim and they're in the surf in North Carolina or they're at sea in North Carolina. But the wreckers... That's kind of how they made their living. So then you begin to have people taking advantage of this mystery to write poetry, to write stories. It becomes fictionalized because it is such a good, quote-unquote, story. So, for example, in 1895, the poet John Williamson Palmer published Theodosia Burr, The Wreckers Story, which includes in it the supposed plank walking. And Newbie clearly is very excited by this. (laughs) So this is just a little bit from Palmer's poem. Her steps are doom strokes marking straight to the plank and mounted. One, two, three, four, we counted till she paused or the flood suspended, poised, her live arms extended and the storm stood still and waited for the stroke of the Lord belated. That's some good 19th century poetry for you. 1957, Robert Frost has a poem titled Kitty Hawk that has a lot of things in it, including the Wright brothers, but he does also talk about Theotosha Burr. And this poem is from 1957, Kitty Hawk, and this portion reads, Did I recollect how the wreckers wrecked Theodosia Burr off this very shore? T'was to punish her, but her father more. Bird's always, you know, the fact that she's linked to Aaron Bird doesn't help the story making, or it helps very much the story making about her fate. Off this very shore, t'was to punish her, but her father more. We don't know what for. There was no confession. Things they think she wore still sometimes occur in someone's possession. What do you think this says about that particular moment? I mean, I'm sitting here looking at it, and I'm looking at the fact that Theodosia is married to a very wealthy Southern man, the daughter of a very prominent Northern man, at a time when you have real class tensions in America, or burgeoning class tensions. Is that part of what's going on here, or is it political, or is it the fact she's an educated woman who ends up, you know, basically apparently dying at the hands, at least in fantasy, at the hands of an underclass? What's going on? Well, I think there's a lot of things. I mean, some of it is, in a sense, the most simple explanation, which is she was a notable, noteworthy woman who already stood out and people noticed her. And she was linked to one of the most notorious Americans at the time, Aaron Burr. So for those reasons alone, certainly her fate would have been noticeable and people would have been wondering about it. But I also think that some of it has to do with 
the very real dangers of traveling by water. So a wealthy, well-known woman attached to a well-known, notorious semi-founder gets lost at sea. And as a narrative, that combines a lot of things that are of interest. I'm looking at it from the outside and saying, you know, people could interpret this as punishment for Aaron Burr for his attempt to destroy the country. They could see it as, hey, it doesn't matter how rich you are, you still could end up walking the plank. It could be, you know, there's just these giant mysteries out there and they don't know what they are. Or maybe all of it wrapped up together. One of the reasons I'm interested in this this topic is because of the things we project. And in a romantic sense, not lovey-dovey romantic, but in sort of that 19th century romantic sense, this idea that you have this blank canvas on which you can project all of these different things based on a cartoon narrative, if you will. You know, somebody sails off into the unknown and you don't know what happens. And that idea of sailing off into the unknown is such a part of world literature, but certainly part of American history, where, you know, people take on the elements, they take on the unknown, they and with luck, they emerge heroic, but sometimes they don't emerge. Well, and also along those lines, this is a wealthy, maybe not famous, but reaching in that direction person who ends up being out of control, does not control her fate, is swallowed by the sea. So if you're looking at elite people in this period in one way or another, and I suppose this has a little tiny echo of what some people were thinking about the Titan, right? She's someone famous and wealthy and also at the moment has this tragic loss of her son. And then she has no control over what happens to her. She sets out, she vanishes late 18th and early 19th century newspapers, sometimes they would just have a word before the story in italics with an exclamation point that would say, melancholy. Um, There was a tenor to this of the tragic sort of storytelling component of it. But I think there was a kind of moralistic underpinning. Maybe there was something about this having to do with someone being punished. I mean, in a sense, all of these different narratives we're talking about here, there's a desire for a good guy and a bad guy. Right? And is the bad guy Burr? Is the bad guy the pirates? Who's taking what side? And what does that say? You know, Americans want to side with what or want who to be the bad guy, but they very much want that to be a story with a lesson of some kind. And so some of the narrative spinning has to do with that. What's the lesson? Well, the lesson is pirates. Pirates are horrible. Well, the lesson is the fates came down on her because of all that her father did. Okay, so I'm going to write my own version, and that's where she launches a mutiny, takes over the ship, sails to some other country, and becomes a dictator who makes everybody do exactly (laughs) what she wants. (laughs) That's a good ending. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Cafe History content, check out Time Machine, 
a weekly column by our editorial producer, David Kurlander, inspired by each Now and Then episode. You can receive the Time Machine articles through the free Cafe Brief email. Sign up at cafe.com slash brief. So many of these points were great transitions to the Mary Celeste, which is another mysterious ship that something happens to and becomes embedded in American mythology. The Mary Celeste is known as a ghost ship. It was found abandoned in 1872. The Mary Celeste leaves New York City, headed for Genoa, Italy, on November 7th, 1872. The captain was a man named Benjamin Spooner Briggs. He was a seaman from Massachusetts. He knew what he was doing. He brought along his wife and his two-year-old daughter. They had a navigator and five crew members. There were 10 people on board in total. Briggs was a teetotaler. He had a great reputation. The crew was a top-notch crew. The cargo of the ship was alcohol. Its primary cargo was 1,700 barrels of alcohol. And it sails out of New York, headed for Europe. And on December 5th, 1872, about a month after it leaves port in New York, a Canadian brig named the Dea Gracia was on a similar route, but was supposed to be eight days behind. And between the Azores and the coast of Portugal, it spied a ship that was erratic. It was sort of slatting back and forth. The crew boarded it and found the Mary Celeste completely abandoned, but otherwise almost entirely undamaged. The lifeboat was missing, and the log had last been updated nine days earlier, and it suggested from the coordinates that were in it that the ship had been about 400 miles away the last time the captain had updated the log. So the Dea Gracia's crew splits up, and it sails the Mary Celeste into Gibraltar, and a salvage court gave the money for the, the recovery of the ship, of the Mary Celeste. Okay, so you have this ship that is very well-manned, Coming from New York to Italy on a pretty common route. With women and children on board. With women and children on board. And it's empty. There's no sign of foul play. There's no sign of damage to the ship. It's just empty with a valuable cargo on board. So one of the theories that comes out immediately is that there is a pirate attack or a mutiny on the part of the crew. Again, the life of people on the water is of great speculation then and now, and the different classes aboard the ships and the different peoples aboard the ships, because remember, the ships are largely usually going to have seamen from all over the world who end up sort of in ports and take passage at working to another port. So, you know, you don't necessarily always know who the crew is, but this crew appeared to have been a well-known crew and Briggs appeared to know exactly what he was doing. So one of the things that feeds that speculation is that the rumor circulates immediately that there is blood found on Captain Briggs' sword and on other parts of the ship. But then it turned out that that was not true. So then people come up with all kinds of different theories about what had happened. One of my favorites is they unintentionally detached the lifeboat from the ship while the passengers were all in it. Oops. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> a, I mean, it's a little hard to get your mind around how that would happen unless, literally, I'm, I'm reading about this the other day and I'm thinking, a water spout. If a water spout was coming to the ship, I could see people being like, ah, oh, crap, let's get out of here. 
But could you really see that? Wouldn't you figure you'd be safer on the, the ship? Well, whatever. The people have also suggested that ghosts came aboard ship or other supernatural powers came and cleared the humans off it. The British and American popular press, not surprisingly, very soon picked up on the, the literary elements, the, the drama, the suspense, even a sort of romance to what happened to the ship. In early March of 1873, for example, the London Chronicle opened their story on the Mary Celeste by making a little bit of an allusion to some writers. The Chronicle wrote, the Gibraltar Chronicle relates a story which might have given a hint to Edgar Poe or Coleridge. Now, these kinds of dramatic retellings subside after time in the late 1870s. The Mary Celeste even returned to service as a cargo ship for Boston businessmen. The ship's new captain, his name was Thomas Fleming, certainly knew of the Mary Celeste's history, and he told the LA Times in 1883 that he had never had a supernatural experience while aboard the vessel. He said that the ship has been a lucky ship ever since and that never a ghost or spook of those who vanished have ever appeared on her since. This is where, to me, it gets extraordinarily interesting because the Mary Celeste controversy comes back in 1883. Now, again, to set the stage here, 1883, as I'm sure I've alluded to before, is my favorite year in American history because so many things happen. But it is also the year in which the U.S. Supreme Court declares unconstitutional the Civil Rights Act of 1875 through the civil rights cases. So race is on everybody's mind in a really big way. And what the issues of race in the United States are going to mean going forward. So what we know of Mary Celeste's crew that disappeared, they're all white. There is no hint that there is any kind of racial story playing out on the Mary Celeste at all. But in 1883, Arthur Conan Doyle, 25 years old, had been a ship surgeon, and he later on is going to go on to write the famous Sherlock Holmes stories, on which, by the way, I was completely reared. A different mystery, but still a mystery, right? Yes, but you can see all the roots of his style and later mystery writers here in something he publishes in a British periodical called the Cornhill Magazine in 1884. He publishes something called J. Habakkuk Jepson's Statement. This is a fictional retelling of the Mary Celeste mystery from the viewpoint of a supposed passenger, the guy who's in the title, J. Habakkuk Jepson. He is a Civil War veteran, he's an abolitionist, and he's a doctor who boards the Mary Celeste in hopes that the sea air is going to clear his lungs. He's got a, a lung disease. And it is an unbelievable story, which, by the way, is available to read online if anybody is interested. It is a complete projection of white racial fears in this period onto the Mary Celeste. What happens is Jefferson goes to take passage on the Mary Celeste to help his lungs, and it looks great because Briggs knows what he's doing, and the wife and the kid are cute, and the, they've got these great, talented seamen to get the ship to where it's supposed to go, and he's all excited. And there is this other man who takes passage on board the ship, and his name is Septimius Goring. 
And Septimius Goring is this loathsome character from the very beginning. He's missing fingers. He's very, very wealthy, obviously. But he makes a big point of the story of talking about how he is biracial or of some kind of mixed race and all of the stereotypes of the time that go along with that. Now, as the voyage continues, passengers start dying one by one in incredibly gory ways. It's a horror story, basically. And it turns out that Goring has been secretly changing the navigational instruments on board the ship so that instead of going to where it was supposed to go, it goes to Africa. And he kills all the people on board the ship and steals the ship so he can become a king in Africa. And what saves the Jefferson guy is that because he was an abolitionist, an old, incredibly stereotypical Black enslaved woman during the Civil War, because he was a Civil War veteran, gave him a token that offered him protection amongst the superstitious natives of Africa. And he comes home and he, he writes this story. So it is this unbelievable window into the worst, most horrific views of race in America in the 1880s. But here's the kicker. It's told by a guy from Britain who is clearly trying to establish a position as a writer. So what does he do to establish that position as a writer? Is he packages this political, social set of racist fears from the United States and publishes it in a British magazine that is essentially selling this myth to get him attention? That's fascinating because obviously also in the process saying a lot about the United States, right, to a British audience. And even, you know, the fact that the main character, he's an abolitionist, but he's an abolitionist who owes his life to a Black woman. The British eliminated slavery far earlier than the United States did. So again, here's a British author focusing on something that I suppose you could also say the United States lagged in, in how it dealt with this problem, feeding it to a British audience, it would be really fascinating to know what Americans thought about this. You know, a lot of people thought it was real, and it's written as a first-person account, as so many 19th century accounts of being on the ocean were. So it feels as if it is being told for real, like the same way Moby Dick was, or the same way that, you know, two years before the mast was, or all of those stories about what it was like to be on the water were written. So people thought it was real. But the other thing that really jumps out when you read it, is the recognition in this period of changing technology that you don't really know where the lines are about what is real and what is not. You know, we talked about this when we talked about spiritualism. If you can talk across long distances on the telegraph or the telephone in the 1870s, could you maybe talk to the dead? And within this story, there's also so much mythology because what this guy Goring wants to do is he wants to go back to Africa and become a king. So he arranges for Jepson to escape because as long as Jepson is there, the, you know, superstitious Africans are going to worship him. Whereas if he goes back to the gods, they will worship Goring. It's not just the race that he picked up. He also picked up the different pieces of the technological unknown in the 
late 19th century. And also the brushings of culture. You know, we're starting to get anthropologists and sociologists starting to say, you know, what does it mean to have a culture? What do people that have been previously thought of as being backward, are they backward? You know, would they start worshiping somebody from outside? And of course, Conan Doyle is going to go on to do that in the rest of his Sherlock Holmes stories, where there's always some little thing that if you're observant enough, you know something that nobody else does. He loves little technological glitches in those stories. But this goes on. So we have, I mean, first of all, I just found this story eye-popping. But second, then there's huge new interest in the Mary Celeste to the point that, you know, most people have at least heard the name, even if they don't necessarily know what it's about. But then in order to solve this mystery, which had become huge again, the British Strand magazine asked readers to send in any information they had about the Mary Celeste. We're going to crowdsource it, right? So a headmaster from a prep school, a fairly, you know, Tony prep school called Peterborough Lodge, sent in a series of papers that his butler, Abel Fosdick, had given him on his deathbed. In these papers that seemed to be a diary written at the time of what was going on with the Mary Celeste, Fosdick details his time as supposedly a member of the Mary Celeste's crew. And his entries suggest that one crew member had been attacked by a shark while trying to win a bet about how well he could swim with his clothes on. And supposedly, in the chaos that resulted from that episode, a temporary observation deck that Fosdick had supposedly constructed for Captain Briggs' wife and daughter, collapsed. Everyone but Fosdick fell into the water. They were all devoured by sharks. Fosdick claimed that he clung to a portion of that collapsed observation deck and washed ashore in Africa. And at the time, right, people were immediately, newspapers and others were asking the question, the logical question, has the greatest of sea mysteries finally been solved? New York Times actually had a headline asking that question, and the Times repeated, reprinted almost verbatim Fosdick's account of the accident. Now, of course, when people read that account more closely, they discover all kinds of problems with it. The weight of the ship, the makeup of the crew, the weather conditions, it has all kinds of details that don't match the record of what seemingly happened. And after this initial fuss, the Fosdick papers end up being mostly discounted. It's kind of like that imaginary bloody sword. This explains it all. Oh, no, it doesn't. But it would have been a violent tale that somehow or other has a moral attached to it. No, we actually still don't know what happened. I do. Okay, I'm waiting. Theodosia Burr started a family of women pirates. And her granddaughter went out and boarded the Mary Celeste, took all the people off, and Briggs's wife and daughter joined her in their pirate gang, and they tossed all the men overboard. Now, what I what <laughs> I, I kind of lost about it this, there at the end, but I was I know, at the beginning. Still, well, it's good. <laughs> but what I love about this is I can say the same thing, which is, and the reason we don't know that. It's because it's such a dire story that no one would want to be true that people have been hiding the truth. I think that's excellent. We can link these two stories together. 
and kind of come up with a semi-feminist interpretation, which says a lot about us, I suppose. Well, well, but that's just it, right? (laughs) The idea that the ocean is a vast unknown and it invites people to test it, if you will, in one way or another. And then when there is some kind of a mystery associated, we project onto it what might have happened there. Well, in that sense, the sea becomes a mirror in which we really see ourselves and our time and our interests and our fears. And obviously, that mirror can change a lot over time, which brings us back to the submersible, the Titan. And what we saw when we looked at that particular kind of mirror, and one of the things we didn't mention at the beginning of this episode, but that falls right into this category, is the fact that many people thought that the coverage of the Titan said a lot about who we were because what wasn't being covered was a massive wreck in which what is believed to be the second deadliest refugee shipwreck on record, as many as 800 migrants sank off the Greek coast and what people began pointing out again and again as they talked about the Titan submersible was, isn't it interesting that the press is all interested in that and they're not focusing on the loss of 800 lives. That's getting almost no coverage at all. So that in the end, part of at least what some people saw when they looked in that mirror that was the Titan submersible incident was a press that was focused on good stories and a lack of morality in the modern mind. In that period in which the submersible was missing, but before we knew what had happened, there were a number of stories lionizing the people on board as explorers, as people finding something new in a world that had been so circumscribed by technology, by the rapid transfer of information. Attaching by so them many to things. other kinds of narratives, right? That's if you're right. an explorer, then you're linked to these other kinds of people who are brave and sacrificing themselves to go off and find amazing things. So that that creates a backstory if that's what you're doing. And contrasting that with the people who said, you know, why are we spending gazillions of dollars to find people who chose to go down in this Titan, when in fact we can look right here on the surface to stories we know the answer to, you know, the the 800 migrants. And maybe that's part of the story itself, that the fascination with the Titan in the days when it was lost were because we didn't know the outcome and we could project the outcome. We projected the outcome, but we projected it in politicized ways, in ways that were divergent. In that sense, again, kind of in a mirror sort of way, in which some people wanted the explorer great men tale to be true, and others said, I don't care about the explorers and the great men. 800 people died, like everything else in the current moment. There were different narratives with very different lessons, very different morals behind them. Our conversation continues for members of Cafe Insider. Heather and I take you behind the scenes of each episode in a special segment of Now and Then that we call Backstage. So join us backstage and get an inside look at the thoughts we're wrestling with as we prep for our weekly conversations. Head to cafe.com slash history to join. That's cafe.com slash history. 
That's it for this episode of Now and Then. If you like what we do, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. Your hosts are Joanne Freeman and Heather Cox Richardson. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producer is David Kurlander. The audio producer is Matthew Billy. The Now and Then theme music was composed by Nat Wiener. The cafe team is Adam Waller, David Tattashore, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azalai, and Jake Kaplan. Now and Then is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.